Ingrid Bergman was a wise and gifted woman. She was both beautiful and brave. The world fell in love with her in 1942 with Casablanca and remained that way until she died of cancer in 1982. She was one of Hollywood's top box office attractions when she fell in love with Roberto Rossellini, the Italian film director. She was married at the time and the scandal shook Hollywood. This, after all, was the luminous beauty who in films like The Bells of St. Mary's and St. Joan projected an image of virtue and decency. She was denounced in the American Senate as a cheap, chiseling female. For years, she was an outcast from a prudish and moralistic Hollywood. Typically, she went her own way, working in Europe and on stage until she'd outlived her critics. What was most impressive about her was her strength, her refusal to compromise true feelings. And by the time she went back to America, she'd won. She'd established her right to be independent of Hollywood. She made the mountain come to her. Now, what you're about to see is an interview I did in 1973. And where else to start but at that marvelous moment in Casablanca, when every man in every gin joint in the world knew why Bogey was in love with her. Did you know when you were uh, making that, that film, Casablanca, that it would one day become the, the cult movie that it is now? No, I certainly did not at all. It was a great confusion during the, the shooting of the picture. And uh, I'm quite surprised, but I must say I saw the picture here at the Film Institute about two years ago for the first time on the screen, not on television. Mm. And uh, I really thought it was a very good movie. It is a good movie. Surprise. I mean, there aren't many films, are there, that made that long you can look back at and think yeah. that's a good, good movie. It stands yes, up. Yes, it was it? good also because all the parts were played by such good actors. The smallest part was really a top-class actor. Yes. So that helps a lot. Yes. Is it true it was made in, in, in as you say, in some confusion, haphazardly? I mean, nobody had a real yes. idea. No, we didn't have the script. It was written as we went along. And to tell you the truth, no one knew, knew how to end it. So we went along uh, until the bitter end. <laughs> and it was very bitter because they said I should shoot it both ways. Either I should go with the husband in the plane, played by Paul Hendrick, or stay on the ground with Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> and it was very difficult to act out these love scenes because I really didn't know uh, which one of the two men I was in love with. <laughs> but it doesn't show. <laughs> no, it doesn't indeed. You went off with the right fella in the end, I think. What about um, Bogart? Because he's grown into a cult figure too, hasn't he? Yes, so oh, very much so. What, what, what is the appeal? I mean, were you able to, to assess it when you were working with him? No, of course he was an excellent actor. And he always played himself, of course. He didn't make any uh, character makeup or change or anything. As a matter of fact, I think he, he wore the same raincoat and the same hat in every movie. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been terrible to be close to, as he did. <laughs> but he had that marvelous voice yes. that you could hear right now this minute. It was such an interesting and rough voice. And, of yes. course, he was also considered a tough man, but I think that inside he was quite a lovable person. Did, did you, you say you think so. Didn't you get to know him at all? No, I, I really didn't. I think he was as upset as everybody else about not having a script and not knowing exactly where we were going. And uh, he used to stay very much by himself. And, um, well, in, in another interview, because I've talked a lot about Casablanca. Ignore all the other interviews. <laughs> it's the first time you've talked to me. And... Um, they used to ask me if I knew him, and I said, no, I don't know him. I kissed him, but I don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> it must be very difficult, mostly, particularly playing a romantic part opposite somebody that you literally don't know. I mean, you just no. see on the set. 
No, it isn't difficult. Uh, when you look like Humphrey Bogart, and <laughs> you can act like he does. And uh, I think he's absolutely wonderful. I mean, I'm so pleased when I see that he looks at me with such love in his eyes. <laughs> yeah. It's very flattering. Yeah. Of course, one of the, one of the great characters uh, in that film, behind the scenes, was Michael Curtis, of course. The yes. the, I, I, I mean, there are more stories about Curtis in Hollywood than probably... Cecil B. DeMille, I suppose, aren't they? Yes, he was. He was a very colourful person yeah. and temperamental. And uh, he told me a very funny story. When he came from Hungary, uh, that was years before Casablanca, because he had done several pictures before, uh, he arrived in America by boat, and uh, he saw the harbour full of flags and band playing and ribbons were flying. And he was so moved where he stood, you know, seeing this, he said, I didn't know that they knew me so well in America, <laughs> and I would get a reception like this. And it was much later they told him it, is, it was the 4th of July. Poor devil, what a let go. You're back now, of course, in the, in the theatre, aren't you? You're enjoying by being back on the stage. Oh, yes, I mm. like it very much. And I like it here in London because you have such interest for the theatre, and um, people are very respectful, and they come on time, and uh, they listen very carefully, and they're easily moved, yeah. and uh, I find that they laugh easily too. Yeah. It is not like um, Italy, where they come about 30 minutes late, <laughs> and uh, trample through the seats, you know, and have everybody get up, and um, you hear chow, 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 all through the <laughs> first act. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, you think that now they are in the theatre, so at least the intermission comes, they'll be come back in, but then they're all out drinking espresso, you see. So they are just as late coming in for the second act, going through the same thing. <laughs> and um, when the show is over, very often I have seen the audience get up and walk out, applauding as they walk. The, few, <laughs> the poor uh, actors stand there and bow, but they see only the backs of the people. <laughs> that must have been appalling thing to happen. <laughs> Terrible. Can you, in fact, because you started off, didn't you, in, in the theatre, can you remember your, your first audition? Uh, yes, I started dramatic school. Uh, and um, we have the Royal Theatre in Stockholm, and that is a free school, you see, so everybody tries to get in there because it's the best education and the best teachers, and also you don't pay anything. And you're taken care of it, you're supposed to play um, small parts, and so after three years of studying, so you already had kind of five years ahead of you. Uh, I tested to get in there, and we were about 75 youngsters, and um, the, there are all the actors and the teachers and the head of the theater, and you came out on the stage, and you read whatever you had to read. And I had just begun when somebody said, that's enough, miss, out, you can go. And of course, I thought that I was so awfully bad that uh, they didn't have the patience to listen through my test. Well, I went out, and I stood there and looked at the, at the sea in front of the theater. We have a lot of water <laughs> in Stockholm. <laughs> And uh, I was wondering if I should throw myself in the water and get it over with right away, because I wanted very badly to become an actress. However, I got a message to come back to the theatre, and I was engaged. And later on, I asked why they had done it, and um, it was very cruel of them, of the jury, to do that. And they said, well, the minute you got in, and the way you moved on the stage, we realized that, that you had it. <laughs> we didn't want to waste any more time. You were in, yeah. <laughs> because I thought I was out. <laughs> yeah. 
How did you, I mean, you, you, you then moved to, uh, eventually you got to, to Hollywood. I didn't have the patience to go through the five years no. in the school and being engaged by the theatre. I went directly to the movies. Yes, in Swedish song. movies, that's yes. right. And I worked for a couple of years. And then um, a picture called In the Med, so that you called Escape to Happiness in England. Yes. It was shown in a small art theatre in New York. And... Uh, David Selznick had a lady who were reading books and looking for talent for him. Where she went up into her office building, and the, off, the elevator boy was of Swedish descent, and his parents had gone to see the Swedish movie, and said to this lady, her name is Catherine Brown, my parents were very much taken by a young Swedish actress, and I think you are looking for talents, why don't you go and see the movie? She did, she sent the movie to Mr. Selznick, and he asked me to come over to America and do a repeat. So I, um, I owe my career in America to the elevator boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it happens in movies, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Did you, um, I mean, I suppose then they, they got hold of you, and I suppose that they started to try to process you. I mean, did, did they yes, try well, to... Yes, that was very difficult in the beginning, and I don't know where I got my determination and strength from. I, I was so young, and I wanted so much to try my wings in Hollywood, but um, immediately I was considered uh, too tall, and they were going to do something with my face and knock out my teeth, put in other teeth, and change my eyebrows and make them thinner, and uh, change my name. And when I heard all that, I got terribly frightened, and I said, I want to go back, I don't want to do all that, because it would be terrible if my first movie was a flop, and I had to go back to Sweden because they wouldn't want me in Hollywood, mm. and I would come back with a changed face and a changed name. I, I wouldn't be able to pick up my career after that. Yeah. So I refused and refused and refused, and then they accepted my name and uh, what I looked like. You became, of course, the, the biggest uh, female box office star in the world at, at that time, didn't no, you? No, I don't know. Oh, you did, did really? indeed. I've been doing my homework, yes, indeed. <laughs> and in fact, there was only one, one male star who made more, whose picture made more money than you, and that was Bing Crosby. Oh. Mm. You didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, they probably owe you some money then. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, wonder, I wonder if, if in fact, you've ever thought about, about that period in your life when you're so immensely popular. I wonder what it was that made you so popular. I think I came at the right time. I mean, uh, first of all, you have to have talent, mm. naturally. But it's also a question of timing and luck. I happened to come to Hollywood when all the other actresses were very artificial. You know, they had tremendous hairdos that never blew in the wind. They got out of bed, but they had absolute perfect makeup. And whatever they did, they looked absolutely as glamorous as you could. And when I came to Hollywood, as I refused to do anything particular to make myself glamorous, and I wore very simple clothes, and... Um, I looked like the girl next door, as they used to say, and it was such a shock <laughs> to the audiences to see that they could identify with that person. I wasn't so terribly beautiful that they couldn't, you know, identify. Oh, come on. Yes, no, I wasn't. I was never oh. considered a great beauty. No, I did. No, well, I could. <laughs> and, no, that I mean, was Hedy Lamar and... Uh, that was never Hedy Lamar at all. <laughs> I think the other thing about you, too, you say this, but in fact, in, I, I thought at the time, too, you were very sexy as well. No, thank you very much. <laughs> no, I was never considered femme fatale, nor sexy, nor anything. I was just the, the simple girl, the refugee, and the good girl. 
and I got very, very tired of always being so good. <laughs> and uh, when we did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, I was uh, given the part of um, Dr. Jekyll's fiancée, who was a very good girl, and Lana Turner played the girlfriend of Mr. Hyde, who was a little bar maid of light virtue. And I was terribly <laughs> envious of Lana Turner's part. And I think that maybe she might like my part for a change, so I talked the director into switching us, which he did. And that was my, one of my greatest triumphs, you see. <laughs> I managed to play the bad girl. <laughs> when you look back, of course, at that, that period in, in movie history, and you look at the films now, in fact, it was, in a way, the age of innocence, wasn't it, by comparison to today's uh, movies, oh, yes, as you see. Yes. What, what, what kind of, when you were making films in those days, what kind of restrictions were, were placed on you? Yeah, well, there were so many restrictions. I don't know how they ever could make as good movies as they were, because many of the movies are so good. Of course, I think what they do today is completely unnecessary. Uh, you don't have to have nudity, and you don't have to have so much violence and blood and all that. It's not necessary to make a good movie. But uh, we were so restricted with love scenes uh, that, uh, for instance, uh, if you remember Notorious, it was a scene where I kissed uh, Cary Grant, and uh, Hitchcock wanted very much to have a long kind of kiss, but that was forbidden. They stood always with a watch like that, and the, the, the seconds, you see, they said, that, stop it, and it was very few seconds, and you had to break it. And he managed with a telephone that I talk on the telephone and I kiss him and I talk on the phone to make it go in a, into a quite a long love scene. And um, the censorship really couldn't cut it because <laughs> it destroyed it fooled them. It fooled them. <laughs> it became, in fact, notorious and notorious as the yes, ten-minute yes. kiss, didn't it? And a nice actor to play opposite him, isn't he? Oh, he's Beautiful wonderful. comedy touch. Yes, Gary yeah. Grant was absolutely marvellous mm. when you look back at all the movies he did. And uh, there has never been anything like him no. up in comedy like No, no, indeed not. Um, it just struck me there. I mean, you are, you are very tall, aren't you? You mentioned this earlier, that you weren't in the sort of... Uh, Hollywood dwarf mold, these sort of tiny but perfect little porcelain jugs they used to have for leading ladies. Did you, uh, when you went to Hollywood, did, did this cause any kind of hang-up in you? Were you very... Yes, I've always had a complex about my height, and uh, I always thought it was necessary that the man had to be taller than the woman on the screen and on the stage too. But Jules um, Brenner made me get out of that kind of complex when I asked him to maybe, if he would be so kind, to stand on a box in a certain love scene so that he would tower over me and he said, you mean I should play this whole play, uh, this whole picture on a box? And I said, well, you know, you are not the first one uh, when it comes to playing with me, but he said, no, no, I'm going to show the world what a big horse you are. <laughs> that was very That started a very, very nice friendship. I laughed just like you, <laughs> so that's all right with me. But, uh, and since then I have overcome that complex. But, but tell me, who are the people who had to stand on boxes? Warner Baxter I played with, but I, I can't remember. Burgess Meredith and I did a play, Lilium on Broadway, and he's also much shorter. And of course, there we had more problems than on the screen, because uh, on the screen, you know, we're cut to here and we can stand on all kinds of things. But on the stage, we were always very far apart, so that people looked this way and there. <laughs> they couldn't, we never came together without one person sitting down or leaning on something, you know, so everybody... 
Oh, well, I suppose you had to stand in trenches as well, didn't you? If the man wouldn't stand on the box, you yes, dig a hole for you. Sometimes trenches made for me when I had a prom promenade in the garden. <laughs> I used to walk in a ditch. <laughs> <laughs> Who were the exceptions, though, to the shorty brigade? I mean, they... Well, when Gary Cooper was very tall and Gregory Peck is tall. Cary Grant was tall, too. Hmm. So um, I had... I had uh, I had those leading men too. Because you shared a, a sleeping bag, didn't you, with uh, Gary yes. Cooper in uh, For Whom yes. the Bell Tolls? Well, that was very, very clean, very... Well, I know, because if you, watch, if you watch the movie, it's shot so you can't make out whether you're in two sleeping bags or one sleeping bag. You know? Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, you, oh, it, is it? Yeah. Is it done that way? Well, I'm sure that we must have had a tremendous difficulty. I know that we were talking all the time in the sleeping bag. Nothing happens but talk. <laughs> yes. And... Um, and love scenes in those days were never allowed to be horizontal. So when we had that lovely scene, if you remember, where the, the kiss uh, and the, the line, where do the noses go, which is so sweet, uh, that was standing up. <laughs> Couldn't be done in the sleeping bag. <laughs> no. Can I, we talk now about the, the days in, in Hollywood when, as I say, you were the sort of biggest box office star in the, in the world, the female box office star. Can I take you now to... Um, the point in, in your career where it all sort of crumbled apart, which was 1950, wasn't it? When you went to, uh, to make Stromboli. It sounds as if it crumbled because I left. No. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> no, in, in fact, what, what happened, of course, if, if it needs recapping on, is that you went to, to make this film with Rossellini. You were a married woman. You fell in love with him. You, you had his child. And it created the most extraordinary stink, didn't it? I mean, it was... It certainly did, yes. When you look back at it now, I mean, what are you feeling? Well, I feel the same thing as I felt then. I felt it was my private life, and uh, people who judged and wrote and uh, talked in the American Senate and wanted me to be forever excluded from American movies and uh, even putting my feet in America, that they didn't know what they were talking about because they didn't know me, they didn't know what had happened, and... Uh, the only judge that I had was my own conscience. And now, of course, I have gone back to America, and I played in Washington, and uh, 23 years later, another senator went up in the Senate and very kindly asked pardon for the, what the other senator had said. And he said, not only was I welcome in America, but they were honored to have my visits. So if you live long enough, you see, it all comes, <laughs> everything is fine again. Well, I mean, I mean that's too general about, about the, the, the moral stance that people took then, isn't it? Because, I mean, yes. today, I mean, if it happened today, who, who, who would care? Yes, I don't think anybody would care. I don't say that I approve of my behavior. It's not that at all. It is just that people are very, so quickly are ready to judge without knowing the background. And um, I think today we've heard so much and seen so much that people have just become a more callous. <laughs> and they don't care. And they really don't care so much about people's mm. private lives anymore. Mm. It was extraordinary, though. I was reading through the, the press reports at the time. And there's one extraordinary here. You, you were described as an, an apostle of degradation. That's right. That's Are you me. dirty, <laughs> lousy, and filthy? I mean, it's... Yes. Quite extraordinary. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm sure that stuff like that must leave some kind of, of scar on you I and mean, some resentment. I mean, oh, if yes. somebody called me that, I'd, be, I'd get very angry indeed. Yes, I was, but uh, you can't be angry for years and years. Uh, I also, or so many people tried to tell me that it was their enormous love for me, which is true, the American public has been absolutely wonderful to me, that their love 
uh, turned to hatred because I, I, my image was the good, wonderful um, woman who had played, but they forgot that played. Um, the saint and a nun and all those suffering women who were always... They forgot that I was a woman and uh, maybe not at all what I did on the screen. That was not me. <laughs> but um, as I say, that you can't keep going on thinking about that anymore. No. I've forgotten that long ago. I'm back in America. I've been to Hollywood and I have played bo uh, both on, in the theater and yes. on the screen. And, um, can I ask you though, I mean, I mean, yes. when you look back now, I mean, you, um, you, you've in fact divorced Rossellini since then, mm, yes. and you are now married again. Yes. Bearing that in mind, if, if you, this impossible question, but if you could, could go through it again, would in fact you do the same thing again? I certainly would. You would? Yes, because uh, I knew uh, what I did. I didn't do anything uh, that was just uh, hazard or anything. I knew, I was very conscious of what I was doing, and I thought, following not naturally what I have to follow, which is my own head. Mm. I did the right thing. Mm. Who were the people at this time, though? I mean, no, was there anybody who stood by you? You were getting... Oh, yes. I had got an enormous amount of people writing and um, seeing me, and uh, everybody that came to Italy uh, looked me up. You know, people that I didn't know, many people uh, that I had uh, never met in Hollywood, like Chaplin and... Uh, well, there were so many of them, calling me up and trying to comfort me and say, you know, that this is going to blow over and uh, we all love you and uh, thousands of people that wrote to me. Of course, Chaplin, of course, in particular, would know very well what it was like to be, what it was about, <laughs> to be exiled. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. What about the fans themselves? Did you have a, a body of fans who stayed Yes, well? I had an extraordinary group of people called the Alvin Gang. It was because I did uh, John of Lorraine, the, the play about John of Arc, at the theater called Alvin. And they used to stand outside that theater in rain and snow and so on. And um, they had got the autographs, they had the photographs, but they still stood there uh, just to see me go in and see if I came out uh, and if I was happy and ask questions about my children. So now, years later, to this very day, uh, these youngsters are now old people, they are adults and they are married and they have children, but they are still just as faithful and always remember me on birthdays and when I come to America, they are there to greet me. And um, when I came back to, to America, the first time after I had been, um, I don't know what I should call it, but anyway, when they refused to take me back and ten years later I came back to receive the Oscar and uh, New York Critics Award. The Alvin gang was standing at the airport with big, enormous cards saying, welcome back, we love you. And they did what they could do to make me feel that I was welcome. And I thought that was very touching. And I shall never, ever uh, say that fans are tiresome and that they mm. hang after you mm. and they are in your way or so on. Mm. I'm always very grateful. Yes. That, of course, the, the award that you got was for Anastasia, wasn't it? Yes. Mm. Um, then you made a film after that that I, I happened to know had a very profound effect on you, didn't it? The United Six Happiness. Yes. I, I mean, was, what, what was the effect it had on you? <clears throat> uh, it, it, because it was a true story and uh, it always touches me very much when a human being feels that um, she or he hasn't done enough with their lives. They are kind of in the background. They don't see uh, that they can do anything that is important. And then they turn 
to a child and say, well, the least thing I can do, I shall take a child and help a child to live. And uh, it then turns out, as it ha did in Gladys Aylward's case, that the one child that she bought to save from starvation and death uh, became more and more and more. She ended up with over 100 children. Yes. And she managed <coughs> to save all these 100 children by her enormous courage. I always wanted to meet Gladys Aylward. I knew she had moved to Formosa, and it took me 12 years after the picture was done, and I finally reached Formosa, and she had died 10 days before I came. Good God. And I saw her home, and I saw all the children, and it seemed I was right back in the movie again with all the children yes. singing around me. And uh, we found in her home a big clipping book where she had saved all the clippings about the movie, everything I had said, and uh, I had written her a letter and so on, because she wasn't very happy that we did the movie, you see. Why was that? And uh, she didn't like the idea that we had written in love scenes. Now, she told her story, and that was all right, but then she only mentioned very briefly that uh, a Chinese man was in love with her and she loved him. And she, there was no detail, there was no dialogue. She was very discreet about it, and she was asked to give a little more detail to to give her something to build the scenes on, but it was too sacred for her. It was for her something so intimate that she didn't want to tell it. She wanted to, it to be theirs and nobody else's. And of course, they had bought the book to make a movie, so we made up the, the love scenes. Yes. He was a China man, <laughs> played by Kurt Jürgens. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a heavy makeup job, that one, actually. <laughs> it was. Poor man, he had to put in brown lenses in his very blue eyes. <laughs> yes, indeed. But um, I always wanted to, to try to talk to her and, and explain that we hadn't done anything that in any way was any discredit to her. So it made me happy to see, I'm sorry to miss her, but happy to see that it, she had saved everything and cut yeah. everything out. Yeah. And I think she might have been quite happy. I don't know if she ever saw the movie. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's uh, remind ourselves again of the, of, uh, of the movie, with a clip from it now. And I think it is the incident you were talking about when you started your story about the, um, the first child yes. that uh, she purchased, yes, in fact, yes. uh, which started the entire incredible orphanage. You want it to die that you treat it so? If it dies, I'll get another. It is easy to get babies. Ask your man. Be quiet. Did you steal this child? No, no. It's a girl child, worthless. A beggar gave it to me. I hope you find a good woman with a heart full of pity who would take it. I'll take it from you. I'll adopt it. But I need money. How much? Deny. Ten yuan. Sixpence, English money. No, no. take it. If you don't, the child will die and you'll have nothing. Don't you see how stupid and pointless this is? You can't adopt every abandoned baby in China. No, just the ones I'm offered. What are you going to do with her? Call her sixpence, I think. Do you like it? I said, what are you going to do with her? What do you know about babies? What is there to know? When they're dirty, you wash them. When they're hungry, you feed them. We'll find an inn and do both. Of course, not a, you mentioned uh, Kurt Jürgens playing a Chinaman there, but not only that, um, that film, in fact, set in China, was made in Wales, wasn't it? It was all made in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they built all the Chinese villages and the Chinese wall. 
and every Chinaman in Manchester, Liverpool, and London <laughs> was there. I think all the restaurants and the laundries were closed. <laughs> Uh, did you, in, in, in fact, I know that the, the orphanage still exists, as you said, yes, doesn't it? Yes, the orphanage still exists, and I was very touched seeing how very simply she lived. And um, I saw the place where she, she wasn't even buried when I uh, came, but I saw where she was going to be buried. And um, I uh, took it upon myself to continue her work, so I continue to work and uh, hoping to find good people that will send money to the Gladys Aylwards Foundation to continue her good work. I, I see. Then what, what kind of position do you hold then in it? Well, what are you? Oh, nothing. The godmother. <laughs> I, I mean, I just try to um, find uh, benefits or do charity performances, give them publicity, and uh, in every way try to help them to keep up the good work. Yes. Can we, um, as we come to the end of, uh, of um, our talk together, can I just sort of um, ask you, you're now in the theatre, Yes. and enjoying that. Um, when you look to your film career um, <clears throat> in the future, I mean, do, do you see anything on the horizon? No, I think that more or less my film career is over. I've been doing movies for about 35 years, and I mean, I am very <laughs> grateful that it has lasted that long. I will always come back and do something if it is something that suits me. I am in the lucky position that I'm not forced to do anything. In other words, I'm not starving. So I can say yes or no. I can play a small part or I can play a big part. I can go to the theater or I can make it in a movie. That sounds, sounds a very happy position. <laughs> it's a be. very happy and envious position, isn't it? It is indeed. I, do. I envy. I wish I could retire tomorrow. Do you, <laughs> do, I mean, you don't sort of see yourself, do you, by any chance, following the footsteps of one or two other um, very famous actresses like... Uh, uh, John Crawford, you mentioned earlier, and Bette Davis going into yes. horror movies. No, I don't, but then one should never say never. No. Isn't that true? I was just thinking that uh, in Vincent Price, at least you'd have a, a leading man who was taller than you. Yeah. <laughs> Make a couple of very tall vampires, wouldn't you? <laughs> Actually, what you ought to do, I was just thinking about it, is remake Casablanca with me in the Bogart role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dream on, Parky. Ingrid Bergman died 15 years ago on her 67th birthday. She won three Academy Awards and in a variety of parts on stage and screen proved herself a very good actress. Most of all, she was a star. Not in that brash, self-promoting sense, but quietly, almost without trying. The writer Graham Greene once said of her, she doesn't give the effect of acting at all, but of living without makeup, precisely. Next week, we feature an interview with another Hollywood legend, Bob Hope. Until then, goodbye.